0: Welcome to JW Community Podcast, where my mum is basically blabbering on about nonsense.
1: Thank
2: you, Mum. Hello and welcome to another JW Community Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I have my able co-host with me, Lara. Hi, Lara. How are you?
0: Hi, Louise. I'm very well. It's uh, slightly warm here in Melbourne, but winter's coming. It's a little bit colder in Tasmania, where our guest is dialing in from.
2: Oh, that's interesting, because my uh, mum and dad got baptised in Tasmania.
0: Wow, you'll have a bit to talk about. Small world. (laughs) No, speaking of Tasmanians, do do you remember that Denmark stole one of our Tasmanian ladies and married her off to their prince? No. (laughs) Yeah, um, Princess Mary of Denmark. She's from Tasmania. Is she? Yeah, is there a shortage of eligible princesses available in Europe? Because today, Harry's marrying an American. Yes, he is,
2: isn't he? How exciting. I love a royal wedding. I'm not a royalist. Not a royalist, but I do love a royal wedding.
0: So are you doing something this afternoon for it?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm having a tattoo done. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> of Harry? Harry and Meghan's face on my shoulders, No. No, it's just a coincidence. I was going to arrange a street party in my close. We've done it before for a royal wedding and it's really good fun and we have all the bunting up and the flags and we'll bring trestle tables out and have cups of tea. It's terribly, terribly English.
0: British, yeah.
2: Yeah, but um, uh, too too many of us were doing other things today. So we're just going to arrange a street party for a random non-reason at another part time of the year. (laughs) Anyway, tell us about our guest, uh, Lara
0: Our our guest is no stranger to a podcast uh, And her name is Lisa She's going to tell us a lot about herself But essentially, she was a nurse And she's since studied to be a social worker And we haven't spoken to a social worker before So I thought it'd be really interesting to hear her perspective On post-JW life Um, So you're welcome to talk to her about... um, Uh, being in Tasmania in the past, your family, and um, she's just moved house. So we've waited since October to speak to her. So I'm really looking forward to it. And her former podcast was with XJW Critical Thinker. So it'd be nice to put a link to that down the bottom. And yeah, that topic was about the two witness rule. But today we're going to talk about her personal perspective on how social workers can help XJW. So over to you, Lisa. Hello. Hello.
1: Hello. Hello from lovely Tasmania. Beautiful weather here. Good. Mm-hmm.
2: Are you coming into winter as well?
1: Yes we are, but it's all the autumn colours at the moment, it's just magnificent. Oh
2: I think you must be confused because it's actually coming into summer. I just I don't I don't know what you people are talking
1: about. It's lovely and warm. <laughs> Oh yes. well Lisa, I, tell us about your study. All oh, right. well I was studying um, I'm an enrolled nurse and I was studying for my um, to be a registered nurse, but my husband and I moved to Tasmania and I missed the intake, so they offered me social work, um, which I was happy to do. And it's, so I studied at UTAS, the University of Tasmania, and completed my degree. And since then, I've also done three units of a four unit diploma in family and domestic violence. And that's been quite traumatic, but very interesting as well. And it's been very interesting to study social work, but also, especially because I'm, I'm, I'm 57, I left the cult very late. I'm a third-generation cult member. And so this is now my, like, my, my I'm, I'm just starting my life now. So, so it can, ne- you know, I only learned about feminism at 55. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's never too late. And I, I, what, I, what I love about social work, and it has its problems, but it's, it's based around a framework of social justice and human rights. And it's very interesting that it's in, in sort of Australia, church agencies and faith-based agencies employ social workers. They're the largest employers and because they're really entrenched in the system of welfare provision. So you have a bit of an overlap there. And, and also it was really interesting for me at university where I, where I thought I was in a really safe place two weeks before the end of my two-year um, social work degree. Another another student noticed that this this student wouldn't ever eat with me if we ever had social things, and it and it worked out. She was an active Jehovah's Witness. Oh my goodness! So I got shunned at university, and which is amazing because if you think about you know social justice and human rights, it really doesn't go with with social work. So also I've also met a lot of social workers who use social work um, as an extension of their Christian ministry. There's Quite a lot of very religious social workers. So, when people are accessing them, they have to just see where they sit with religion. That's really interesting. I would not have thought that at all. No, no. And and also, but but you know, the code of ethics for Australian social workers says that they actually social workers have to respect the beliefs, religious and spiritual worldviews, values, cultures, goals, and desires and kinship and communal bonds within that social justice framework and human rights so they're supposed to and also I think that's really important too about the communal bonds um, I've noticed that because I used to live in far north Queensland um, Jehovah's Witnesses have no respect for kinship and communal bonds of Aboriginal people, they just colonise them and treat their, their beliefs as demonised and I think that's a really important thing that we have to realize Jehovah's Witnesses really do not respect, um, uh, other people's belief systems.
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
1: I would agree with that. Um,
2: I know how <laughs> I felt towards other people's belief systems when I was a witness. I used to, when we did the doors, if somebody started talking about their beliefs, I, I immediately used to glaze. Because I used to think, oh, this is all nonsense, what are they talking about, they're deluded. So I used to like give the appearance of listening, but really I was just waiting for them to finish speaking so that I could um, give them a bit of the actual truth, as I <laughs> thought of it in my mind.
1: That's true, that's true. And and also, um, in the Tasmanian context, I can't talk about England, because I'm really sure England's different. Um, social workers aren't named as mandated reporters because they're not registered. They're not a registered organisation. So, I'm my my enrolled nursing actually has um, is I'm a registered um, a person of a registered organisation. And if I do three serious medication mistakes, for example, I can be struck off. But social workers can't. So, so people also have to realise in Australia they're not regulated. I don't know what the situation is in the UK.
2: I had until recently mistakenly thought that teachers and social workers were mandated reporters, but actually then te- there's no mandatory reporting in the UK. And it's a real, it's a common misconception that's perpetuated even by MPs and by NAPAC and by people in the know that there's mandatory reporting for certain groups, and and apparently there isn't. So, for instance, as a teacher, I could be sacked if I saw a child being abused, but there's no criminal penalty for that, or there's no legal sanction. It's just relying on the school doing the right thing. But if the school decides not to do the right thing and not sack me, and and because I haven't reported, then there's no legal... Consequence to that. So that's a big mistake that I have perpetuated in the past on this podcast. Um, but there is, um, I'll just say this, Lara, Gordon's wife Heather is a social worker and she used to do the podcast with me. So I have had um, a kind of a social worker's input before, but again, I'm not, I don't know enough about it to be able to speak myself on those um, aspects. Do you ever come into contact with Jehovah's Witnesses in your work, Lisa? Uh,
1: when I was, it was very interesting. When I was uh, part of a a, um, a small group that was, um, there was two social workers and I was there as well on placement, actually. And it was for a group of young of people, mostly young people, who were sort of marginalized with mental health issues or eating disorders and they would come and we would walk them in the mornings. We'd do art groups with them. We'd do all sorts of things, find them jobs. And it was really interesting. We had this young girl come along and she, we, we went off and played basketball. And on the way back, she sort of very shyly said to me, um, I've, I've left home and I, my family are Jehovah's Witnesses. Because that's a very loaded word, you know, and and I just went into cult speak. I thought, oh, this is so exciting, <laughs> and, and and it was um very interesting. But uh, what happened though, which I was a bit disappointed about, it was uh, I mentioned because I was only there temporarily for five months, and I mentioned to one of the senior social workers there that this young girl has come from a cult background and. The the social worker just said, "Oh, it's all right. I I'm like um like a I come from a strict Catholic family. I know all about cults." And I was so disappointed because there's there's it's not anything like it.
2: Yeah, I agree. That my biggest frustration is when people say, "Oh, well, all religions are cults because they all tell you what to think." And I think it's not so much the beliefs that make it cultic, although they are dubious. It's the control elements that you're not allowed to ever stop believing those beliefs, that there are massive penalties and punishments for leaving. That's the, that's the bit that makes it cultic, not just that you've been told to believe a set of things that may or may not be true.
1: And, and also I think... I think sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Lisa. I was just going to say, for born-in um, cult members too, I think it's very hard because they've been so socially conditioned they really don't have the skills to live in the in- outside world. Like she needed help with everything.
0: Yes. That's exactly what's brought us together today because, Lisa, we had a conversation earlier and you've said to me in the past, you think the best social workers work uh, to work with ex jehovahs Witnesses would be the ones with the fundamental knowledge of the power dynamics involved in domestic violence. And recently we had a domestic violence podcast that you listened to and I happened to be uh, with that survivor uh, at the um, Police Prosecution Office and uh, they brought in automatically a social worker to work with her. But I knew that social worker didn't have any experience with her background. And so for me, without even saying it, I knew there would be a gap. So that's why I was really interested in your perspective of if you can just explain that further, that fundamental knowledge of the power dynamics involved.
1: I, I really enjoyed that podcast, The Enemy Within, and I think Louise shared her experience of um, of um, presenting to a counsellor but saying nothing about her cult background, which I did too. And, and yeah, and Lily also spoke about her difficulty in finding a counsellor. That she could trust, and and I think Lara, you made a good point about how witness women and some men, of course too, can present to a service like that young girl did, undereducated, uh, completely deficient in social capital, really naive. Honestly, they're lambs to slaughter. No material resources, and they have they still have this real literal adherence to that. Authoritarian fundamentalist dictate of, you know, gender, female, wifely submission and the power, you know, the leadership role. And that can really obstruct their safety as well as their self-assertion. And it really can sometimes even limit their options. And, and, and I think the skills that an experienced DV social worker can bring to counseling is, is like the power and control wheel, which is used in DV education, and it's useful in describing, you know, that cultist environment because it's an attack on self, a sense of loss, and then there's the trauma. So um, I, I think the three main points from that model are that you have to really nurture that therapeutic relationship because, you know, they've been treated like shit and chucked out, they're traumatised, and then have a like a psychoeducational approach which is, Education and then, um, explore their vulnerability and then teach them to deal with triggers and normalize and validate their experience. It's, I think it's one of the worst things is when people try to explain where they come from and it's not validated. Yeah. The other thing is, you
2: often don't understand yourself. So you don't have the vocabulary or the understanding to know. So when I left the witnesses, and this is not a, de- a domestic violence situation or anything near that, just leaving a cult. So when people said to me, well, why didn't you just leave when you were 18? I'd get really angry and say, well, I don't know why. I don't know. <laughs> but but, no. the tr- but the truth was, it took me till about 40 to realise because it wasn't something that I was fighting. It wasn't like I'd been forced to believe something that I didn't believe. And I was thinking, well, as soon as I can get out of this, I will. My own head was self-policing me to believe it years after I left. That's that's the cultic element. It's not like Oh, you've got horrible parents and it's obvious and you know and you're trying to leave. It's the, it's more like Stockholm syndrome where you buy into the system yourself and self-police so that you don't even know that you're in an abusive situation or a, a cultic situation or a domestic violence situation. You, you are buying into that whole setup yourself and thinking that it's right and, and enforcing it yourself. So, so when you get people say, Oh, well, if I was treated like that, I'd just leave. I think, yeah, but you wouldn't because you wouldn't know it was wrong because you would have been born in. And that, that's the frustration I find that people themselves don't have the insight or the,
1: the vocabulary to defend their own position. So they just. And that, and that, that is the same as domestic violence. It's victim blaming. You bought it on yourself. Yeah, or oh, why yeah. didn't you
2: just leave when you could? Well,
0: it's, it, not, yeah. it's not like that. It's not it? like that at all. I'm just thinking when I put myself back into that situation when a social worker just came and sat with us, in what ways might you sort of be paired with an ex-Jehovah's Witness? What kind of situations might you be engaged to work with them on?
1: Uh, many situations. I, I was talking to a senior social worker who said that she had a woman come in a Jehovah's Witness and, and she was leaving a domestic violence situation. And, and I know that she's a good social worker and she provided her with the material supports that, you know, she, the, the housing and, 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 and would have helped her through Centrelink. And there's a social worker at Centrelink to help people, especially who are victims of domestic violence. But I, I don't think sometimes they they understand that you really have to also make sure that um, that they need education, they need group work, uh, they need maybe to be put into a, an internet chat room, you know, or they need to be educated. You educate yourself in, you have to be educated out. Because she said to me, she really fell apart a little bit, you know, she she her life really unravelled. Because, you know, you leave, you leave such a tight community and then you go out to such an unstructured world and, and, and without the skills to know how to self-police, how, how to, how to operate successfully. I, I think sometimes people think you know how to do it, but you don't. Well, and also because
2: as a witness, you do present quite nicely. You present maybe articulately because we talk a lot, maybe not read a lot. I don't believe witnesses are very well educated, despite the literature that comes through, <laughs> but they can present nicely, and so it's easy to mistake them for somebody that's maybe more educated than they are, so people think well they're you know they're okay, and generally speaking, Jehovah's witnesses are taught to be clean and dress nicely, and all those um factors that you might look uh, visually to to see if somebody's vulnerable as a, as a lay person, not as a social worker. You know, you might think, oh, well, they're dressed nicely and they're clean and they speak nicely, so they must be okay. But actually, yeah. there's a whole heap of vulnerabilities underneath. And also, we're used to pretending. We're really good at pretending because, you know, we're used to letting people know that we're the happiest people on earth. So you've got that overlaid as well.
1: That's no pressure. Much yeah. I thought it was interesting, Louise, you talked before in in the other podcast about that institutional element that permeates the JW cult and that results in, you know, cultural conditioning. And I thought it was very funny. Early on in my social work degree, um, I was in class in a tutorial and I thought I was pretty groovy and I was, you know, having a nice time. And, and the tutorial was, um, held by this doctor of social work who's a very, who's a specialist domestic violence, um, social worker. And after the tutorial, she asked me to stay behind and she asked me really tactfully if I was the victim of domestic violence because I was, I was exhibiting the symptoms. And, and, and I stated, well, not personally. But I'd recently exited a high control cult and she immediately asked if it was Jehovah's Witnesses. And since then, I've revised that. You know, I do think that I was personally um, still and still am a little bit. My husband and I are still going through this power and control thing because, I mean, we were, we're married nearly 30 years and he was top dog and I, and I, I still fall into the handmaiden role you know the the power dynamic it takes a long time to work it through of him him with this headship role which which i abdicate to him and it's amazing just how conditioned we are i do that as
2: well and I, i doubt if many people will believe it because i present as very confident and strident and I don't know a bit gobby I suppose but in my head if there's a job to be done I always think um oh, a man needs to do this or oh I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to do it is is and I, I'm conscious of it and I fight it but I just naturally default to thinking that if a man does it it's kind of more important and that I'm just pff, it's just a woman uh, it, and that's after i have been left 20 years but I've just I mean I just feel like I'm an old dinosaur now maybe I'm just like a really old person with really (laughs) old-fashioned ideas
1: no I I thought a term that I really um, enjoyed learning about at uni was one called learned helplessness and and I Mm. and I found it really described the condition that you know a, a person you know you get this sense of powerlessness when you Fail to succeed as a, as a, as a witness. You're, you're, you're kept so in such submission, and it's thought to be one of the underlying causes of depression. And I spent the majority of my time in the cult on, on honestly, on industrial strength antidepressants. And uh, and so I'm aware that you know if a person is presenting for the first visit to a social worker, they may come across as quite passive and dumbed down. And even, you know, really high um, amounts of um, antidepressants can interfere with your cognitive, you know, faculties. They may be impaired. So it's easy How do pre- they
0: present? Sorry, Lisa, how do they present to a social worker? How
1: does that actually, that um, assistance get switched on? Um, well, it's usually, it, it would have to be a crisis. Um, for, for me, and for me, that's what I, when I started to leave, it was a crisis. It, and it's sort of like the last thing you'll do because the last thing you, you have to be sort of desperate to reach out outside of the, the cult. So it's got to be some sort of internal crisis or crisis at home. Otherwise, Jehovah's Witnesses never will. And that it's also interesting too that I had what I would call, um, an auntie, auntie um Lydia, you know, from the handmaid's tale, and it was and it was actually an aunt of mine who was fanatical, my family were, and it was her job to act as like a an enforcer to keep to keep me in line and the younger women in line. The watchtower uses women like Lydia as enforcers because you know that scripture in Titus is about teaching the young women to be sober and love their husbands and You know, keep us at home and good and obedient. So, as soon as we, as soon as we, you know, try and crawl out of this learned helplessness from under the doona, we then, we we still have to cope with these women who are supposed to be supporters, but they're, they're enforcers. I actually find women
2: who don't understand other women really toxic because they will say, well, I'm a woman, and I don't find that a problem, or it doesn't bother me that x, y, and Z and it's like almost like doubly invalidating because then somebody else will say, huh, oh, well, she's a woman, she doesn't have a problem with that, so what's your problem and i I find I found that with occasionally with um female doctors and female um line managers who are almost like men. <laughs> In, in their lack of understanding. Not that I expect all women to be like, oh mag mega empathetic, but I don't expect them to be so invalidating that you're not allowed to have your own experience. Right, so that's what it is. I don't think all women should be like, oh you're the sisters, I'm going to back you up whatever whether I understand it or not. But I don't expect them to go, well screw you, I don't have that problem. I think you should be allowed to have your own issues without some other person saying, "Well, I'm one of your group, and I don't believe that."
1: I, I don't think feminism, and and I know some women use feminism, and and I and I and I would describe myself as a feminist, but I don't think feminism is to replicate the patriarchy, and and some women do use it for that reason. Like if men can do it, well, it's, well, it's all bets off, and they actually. End up hurting women themselves, and it's quite cruel, you know because you don't expect it. you expect sort of that you know the sisterhood <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, I just think even if you don't understand somebody else's issue, you don't have to invalidate their experience, right You might not understand it or agree with it or think that they're even having an issue, but you don't actually have to go out of your way to undercut them. You could just say, well. I appreciate that's your experience, right? And leave it like that. You don't have to spread, add to people's issues by invalidating them.
1: No, and and I also think a, a big trap that we can fall into, especially, I'll, I'll speak for myself, being a, a long-term um, Jehovah's Witness, I've been a Jehovah's Witness a lot longer than I've been out, and and, I, and my family were very hard-line, so, obviously, if you've been there a long time, you've um, made converts, you've, been, you've shunned friends and family members and you badgered people at the door. And I, I injured my children with cult conditioning and I also um, obeyed the, the two witness rule for 12 years. And I, and I really think that we have to be really careful when we leave. Shame is a really good tool for keeping people in line. And it's really highly, really highly correlated with addiction, depression, aggression, bullying, you know, eating disorders. And it's really shame is the cause of really destructive and hurtful, you know, behaviours. And, and it, the experience of shame, when someone shames us, it, it causes disconnection and and desperation because we want to be worthy.
2: And also it's a pointless emotion. I I think people will be thinking, oh, well, you have to be ashamed if you've done something wrong. I think there's a more positive version of it, which says, I'm not happy with this behaviour, but I'm going, what am I going to do going forward? Rather than just, I'm going to feel really bad about it and helpless. That's, to me, that's what shame is. Feeling bad but not being able to do anything and feeling utterly helpless and useless. Whereas a positive version, it's not about being really proud of everything you've done, but not being ashamed. It's about having a positive view of what you can do to improve in the future. That that would be better than shame, while still acknowledging that maybe there are things that you've done that you don't like. So I'm just aware that, People might think, oh, well, you've got to feel ashamed of some things. No, I don't think you have. I think you've got to maybe decide that some things might change. But you've, you've got, you've got to be able to forgive yourself and move on. Are you just going to be living in a mire of, of helpless
1: sadness? Well, I think, I think you actually have to actively, um, practice courage and fight shame and, and, and don't hide because, you know, if we, it, there's a saying, if we write our own cult story, we get to write the ending and we don't bury it and let it fester. And I've actually, because I've, I've, you know, I've admitted, I, I, I own my shame. For example, about the two witness rule, I've walked up to people at, um, carts and, and, and I can say to them, you know, I protected an abuser for 12 years because, you know, when they pretend they, they don't do it, I own that shame. So it doesn't own me. So I, you know, so I can say, you know, this, this, this is this experience and this is a bad experience, you know, and this is what your, your two witness rule did to me and my family. And I will own it here in front of you. And I, and I really don't mind it if they're in a market or a park because I think, you know, if you chuck me out, the park belongs to me. I'm worldly. You know, you have to, you have to, if you want to be in this space, you're going to have to fight me for it. (laughs)
2: I can hear you owning that, and it is really courageous. It reminded me when you listed the things that you owned. Um, It reminded me of the 12-step program for alcoholics, where one of the steps is acknowledging the harm that you've caused. And that is so hard. It's so, so hard for people to actually acknowledge, I did do this, I own it, and and now I'm going to move forward from it. Because shame is all about hiding things and trying to cover them up and just burying them. And that's where you're going to cause physical and mental illness, where you're burying things inside your body, I think, personally. I sound a bit kooky now, don't I? But I, I think when you bury things inside you, you, you make yourself physically and mentally ill, like having pebbles in your stomach. It's when you're able to face those and and say, this is what I've done. I acknowledge it. I own it, and now I'm going to move forward from it. That takes massive
1: courage. Yeah, and it's also letting go of that cult persona because that that cult persona was why you did those things. So when you when you admit it and you step out of that cult persona, you can you can look back at it objectively and you can say to other people, "Look, come with me. This is the way." You've got, and also you've got to leave a bit of pride behind. We come out pretty dumbed down. Pretty, pretty naive we're going to make mistakes you know and and this is this is it it's painful and and you just got to get through the pain and the mud and get out the other side there there isn't actually any shortcuts unfortunately
2: no i don't think there are any shortcuts to personal work It it is a case of interrogating your feelings and your underlying motivations and unpicking things and working out why you do things and why you feel things. So I think sometimes when you feel a negative emotion, it's easy to blame someone else and think, oh, this is because they did this, this is because he made me feel that. But if you interrogate, right, what is this emotion? Where is it coming from? What's the worst that can happen if I allow myself to feel it? And and there isn't a shortcut to interrogating your own self. It's hard, but it's really worth it. Yes.
0: I was wondering, Lisa, if there was a shortcut to helping people recover through social work. So if I give you a couple of examples, um, so you you just mentioned there, Louise, the 10 steps um, helping alcoholics to recover. And I don't know if you've heard is it, heard of this. I'm sure you have, Lisa, but it's called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Do you know that one? Yes. Do you both know that yeah. Oh, it's an amazing little kind of triangle, which is um, really building blocks on each other. And I I sent you both these little pictures of elephants with my ideas, which, which I just pulled together from reading posts and looking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And there are five steps in that one. And so down the bottom, the basic um, needs that a human has are physiological needs. And the way that Jehovah's Witnesses or ex-Jehovah's Witnesses are missing their physiological needs is when they lose their family home. For example, they get kicked out Mm. or their relationship broke down and um, they're missing that connection to their children, for example. And then the next step up is safety needs. And so in regards to safety, they may not have the physical safety or the um, emotional safety, because again, you know, maybe they've lost touch with their mother, for example. And then Ooh. the third step in Maslow's hierarchy of needs is love and belonging. And that's where we really come a cropper, don't we? The love and belonging is so missing. So for example, the belonging, you don't celebrate a birthday, you haven't celebrated Christmas, you don't know how to celebrate Easter and never enjoyed a Valentine's Day with someone because you And then on the other side, you're isolated from your school friends, your workmates, and other family members. So you're really missing a big sort of um, brick in that needs. And then the fourth one is esteem needs. And you've talked about it already, but it's about the shunning. You're not heard, heard, believed, perhaps you didn't get an education that you wanted, or you're just really poor and it's affecting your self-esteem. You know, you don't feel good enough or like you can do. As you said, it's a learned helplessness. And then the final thing is self-actualization. So if you haven't got those four building blocks, then you don't have, you know, the final piece, which is um, feeling like a whole person. And oftentimes people self-sabotage and become out of control because they're not critically thinking. So I was really interested in if that is something that you think about Lisa all those building blocks to make up of needs and I don't know how you look at it from a social workers perspective but could you share with us what how you look at someone's you know whole being
1: even says that unless many, um workers and other professionals are sensitized and trained they don't recognize that that the bite model is behavior which discounts individualism, information, thought, cult loaded language, emotional control, which is traumatizing levels of guilt and fear, and and that's what cult members are subjected to. So if you if you recognise when they walk in the door that 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 they've been that bite model is present in front of you, then you can possibly like assess. Like, how did the person leave the group? Because that will have a major impact on their healing. If they've been thrown out and completely traumatised, they that will make a, a longer healing time rather than they've just walked away. Um, What pressing issues have they got? Have they got, like you said, housing, food? Have they had enough rest? Um, were they in a position of leadership? Sometimes that can make a big difference too because they can have a lot of guilt from having responsibility to, to um, converts, and also their history in the cult they come from. Were they rebellious or were they an obedient person? An obedient person will find it much harder to um, learn to, like you said, self actualize because they're so used to obeying authority. And that's where a social worker really has to watch out because they're the one in the position of power. And they have to make sure that they share that power with, with, and, and actually force the, the, the ex-Jehovah's Witness or that person coming for help to start to live their own life and not just look to the social worker as the authority figure, the new one. You know, yeah, transfer that role. And also how vulnerable are they? I mean, they can be a target for another cult and, and, and how much fear and guilt is playing out for their and and sort of debilitating their emotions. I remember, I mean, I was in my forties and I refused to go to the meetings anymore. And I used to lay in bed and think I was going to get hit by lightning. It, it's it's I don't think people realise the terror that that is involved in leaving. I, I see people posting
2: online. About that, when things go wrong in the life, sometimes people post, Oh, well, this is what my family would said would happen, that if I left Jehovah, things would go wrong. And actually, things going wrong is a normal part of life. Life is ups and downs, rights and wrongs. To imagine that you could live a life from start to end where literally nothing went wrong, that's that's a cartoon nonsense. That's no such thing exists. And I think we've conflated the idea of perfection, which we were all told would happen to us all eventually, with the idea of nothing going wrong, like not hurt, maybe, I don't know, not getting ill or not hurting yourself or. Um, maybe not falling in love with someone who didn't love you, which is a no-fault situation, right? Nobody's at fault there. If I fall in love with someone who doesn't love me, nobody's at fault. It's just an an accident. But somehow it's not perfect and somebody's hurt and hurt can never happen if you're perfect. And we have a really childish standard for life. And as soon as something does go wrong, we revert back to, well, this is, oh, this is what they said would happen if I left the witnesses, as if, as if things don't go wrong for witnesses as well. It, it's, re- it's heartbreaking, actually, to see people triggering fear because something's happened in the life that's not a great thing.
0: Sorry, Louise, I've got the perfect example of what you've just described. And it was in the news in Australia, and Lisa, I'm sure you've heard of this. Louise, I know you have. Mm. Um, but uh, about a week ago, um, in a place called Osmington in Western Australia, um, an entire family of six was murdered, except for the Jehovah's Witness father. Um, and it's currently being blamed on, um, his father-in-law. And the issue, um, we, we don't know the bottom of it yet, but, you can imagine the Jehovah's Witnesses over there, you know, saying, say, for example, she didn't believe in Jehovah or, um, you know, for example, this is Armageddon coming or, you know, for example, their faith wasn't strong enough. You know, all of those things that can play into a story like this. Now, we don't know what happened, so we can't, um, you know, help to surmise, but just that persecution complex that they like to play. Um, this is something that we, as ex Jehovah's Witnesses, can release. We can just let that go. We don't have to worry about things like that, like um, earthquakes and floods and, you know, blaming it on some simplistic, um, you know, this was caused by Jehovah because of our behavior. We can let that go. They
2: invest a huge amount of um, meaning into actions that are essentially random. So if, if a, if a, bad thing happens and a jehovah's witness isn't killed jehovah's protected them and the flip side of that is he hasn't protected people who aren't witnesses if a bad thing happens and jehovah's witnesses are killed then it's persecution and satan's had to go at them and jehovah will put it. and it's just random stuff good things happen and bad things happen randomly and to invest it with such celestial meaning that that there are, you know, the big fella upstairs playing puppet strings with everybody's life, like he's got nothing better to do.
1: It's such hard work. Uh, did you see that interview that he had on the, it was on the ABC, um, the father said, it, again, about, simple, I was so, so, I thought it was such a sad statement. He said, um, at least the children are in the new system now, and they're asleep and now they're in the new system and then, and then they'll be like the same age when, when we get there or whatever. But you know what? That, that's not good enough. Those, those children had a right to live, to grow, to, to make their own choices, to marry. It, this simplistic thing about, well, they're safe. They're in the new system. They've got through Armageddon. They've got a free pass is not good enough. They lost their lives. It's devastatingly cruel,
2: the view of life and death that the witnesses have. Very flippant. I always used to think when we talked about Job, you know, and how Job was uh, tested by God and how he lost his um, children. Oh, but then he had some more, so that was okay. And, it, and I used to think, he's lost all of his children? This is, imagine even losing one child. You you would be traumatised probably for the rest of your life. Job lost ten and we just went in a flippant little, so, oh, but he had some more, so that's fine. This is not a bag of sweeties. This is human beings. So, Lisa, my social worker friend in the UK, she came across witnesses. Well, she's she's married to an ex-witness. But she's come across witnesses professionally because there was a family that were fostering children. And she said that when she would drop children off with this foster family, if it was close to Christmas, they would, the first thing they would say to the child as it stepped through the door was, of course, we won't be celebrating Christmas. (laughs) Which she found beyond uh, cruel when you look at the situation of the child who's been fostered to a complete stranger and are being told, Straight away, uh, we won't be doing this, that, and the other. Um, and she felt quite strongly that perhaps Jehovah's Witnesses, although they were nice people and kind, clean, nurturing people in all other aspects, the religious element she felt meant that they weren't really suitable as foster carers. I don't know if what you would think professionally about
1: that. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't use them. Um I mean, I would, I'm not a senior social worker, but, and I know they're desperate for foster carers, but, um, I, I would, I, I think that the way they condition children and their worldview is extremely un, unhealthy. Um, it also means that more than likely those children would have to go to the meetings, um, because, because, yeah, which is not, not healthy. And, and, and it's also very, um, I know they're very holier than thou and sanctimonious, and also they're an in-group. So you can't you can't socialise children properly if they're put into a a world-hating in-group.
2: Yeah, and a death a death-focused world-hating in-group. I <laughs> I call it a yeah. death cult now, and I think people sometimes think I'm exaggerating a bit. But when I think about so. A case in point, going back to something you mentioned was I remember being a teenager and talking to friends about this in all seriousness, discussing the fact that, so if you witness to your family and friends and they don't listen and don't become witnesses, would you not be better to kill them all so that they got the free pass into the new system? Obviously you'd be sacrificing yourself because you'd then be a murderer and wouldn't get through but depending on the numbers that you killed you would be guaranteeing those people a shot to everlasting life and wouldn't that be worth it and that obviously none of us were mass murderers so we didn't ever do it but that was a serious we discussed that seriously
1: not as a joke yeah i i think that's um important in in um the maslow's hierarchy of needs too is that Um, witnesses have a very high rate of suicides, you know, and that's something that always should be checked with them and whether they need an individualized safety plan because that free ticket to the new system, I think, is a very dangerous thing. I do. I don't think
2: you fully understand how it plays on your subconscious. You're not... You might not be consciously thinking about it like we were discussing it, but I think subconsciously it's there. The whole life and death aspect of how to get that, that ticket into the new system is there. And that although suicide when I was in was viewed as a sin, um, it, it's an ambiguous thing. You know, death, death seemed like a good option. For some people, I think, because of the belief system, and because we were so focused on death, and and we were so many people were going to die so soon, you had a very blasé attitude towards other people's lives. I remember being on the doors with someone and walking down the path after we'd knocked the door, and the person had rejected the message. I remember the person saying, "Well, you're going to die at Armageddon, then." And I used to think, "Oh my God!" But that was what we believed. But it just seemed quite stark saying it but that was what we believed knock the door you reject me you're gonna die at armageddon
1: i was at my book club the other day and it's got a, a, a women a bit older than me most of them about 10 years old they're in their 60s and they're very bright and very funny and we were all uh, we all had the same book and it was a very good book it was about islam and feminism and and one of the ladies actually said she said you know with this trump we, we're all on a anti-trump thing and she said you know i she said, I think I'm going to become a Jehovah's Witness because I'll, then I'll be part of the community. It's all too much. And everybody went, ah, <laughs> don't come back here. They, they, they were joking. And one of them said, she said, oh, they don't seem to mind if you tell them to um, F off. And and I and, and I said to her, you know, and I've never I I've, I've never talked about my background, and I and I just pretended I knew a lot, but I I will not I don't want to be identified by them at all. And I just said that's because they walked up the walked up the path and thought you're going to get be destroyed. They're going to get your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I
2: remember saying that as well I genuinely remember d- discussing as we were walking up and down the paths whether this would be a nice house for, for us to own in the new system yeah. isn't it horrible it's just so greedy and avaricious and murderous
1: and it's something unearned, I mean it's not earned those people that have, have worked hard and like you said, have, had complicated lives, have had health problems marriage problems, they've they built built a life, and witnesses think they can just come and take it. There's a huge
2: sense of entitlement because we, because they have God behind them, and God authorizes all sorts of things that a normal human being wouldn't
1: authorize. That's right. That's right. And and I and I think that makes it even harder when when we leave because that our whole our whole sort of Worldview and reason for being just crumbles and collapses and, and, and then for us, I think leaving and for social workers, I think they have to be aware that we have to create a new identity and that becomes, you know, quite paramount. And, and I think that social workers have to, um, understand their limitations and, um, and, and, no, already know a good counsellor, a psychologist or a psychiatrist to pass the ball up to because I do think that many witnesses need, um, need help that's probably above the pay grade of the normal social worker. You know, um, sometimes they really, people do need specialist long-term help and support. So would you say that social
2: work help is more like accident and emergency in a hospital and
1: it yeah, try out, triage. Yes. Yeah. Except, except I do know, um, the, the, um, doctor of social work at the university who specialized in, um, DV. She also is part of a, a, one of those funny little places that you don't even know it's there. It's actually, I think it's, it says it's a wrestling club or something, but there's a door that goes into it and it's a, a specialist domestic violence unit. And there, those, those women in there, those social workers are hardcore and, and, and you could go there for, for specialist help, um, and they would be very, very good. But of course, you know, if you needed antidepressants or, um, other things, they have to be got, you know, um, social workers can't prescribe and, and, and sometimes you need everything. And that's not a bad thing. You really have to, have to make sure that you have all the supports that, that you can garner to get through.
0: Lisa, I'm very keen to talk about that. Um, and the, the reason why I want to talk about that is I want to talk about, I've, I've written down everything that you've suggested that social workers can do and what what's missing. And I also wrote a list before this podcast, and I just want to take you through a couple of things and, and get your opinion. So when I left, it took me 10 years to recover because I did it essentially myself. But... Um, mm-hmm. After a couple of years, I did see a psychologist for 10 visits, and I didn't realise it at the time, but it did expedite my recovery because it gave me a lot of language that described how I was feeling, like you've already brought up a couple of those things. So I just wrote a few notes about how I think the community helps people recover, so I'd like to get your opinion on this. So what I've written is our community. So here I'm talking about friends of XJWs and I'm talking about websites that XJWs um, have and I'm talking about meetups. So I'll just describe what I've written. So I think we foster a sense of belonging via online support groups, number one. I think that we um, share our friendship through meetups, number two. I think that we validate XJWs because we mutually storytell and we're doing that today. So that's number three. Um, I think, and um, this podcast, for example, um, Louise embodies comedy and I try to do a bit of education and we swap, you know, through, through different roles, but podcasts is another way that we can get to people to help them to recover. And articles, so for example, Apostate Monthly or um, JW Victims helps people as well. So that would be the fourth point. Um, and also I've noticed in the last year and a half or so, people are expressing their se- themselves creatively. So, for example, they might express themselves through song or poetry or art. Um, so that's number five. And then you've talked about um, facilitating through, and I've written down everything you said. You said you can do assessments, you can provide material supports, you can provide housing, like this is through referrals, um, you can help them with Centrelink. Um, with matching them up with support people, referral to psychologists or psychiatrists, um, and an individualised safety plan, and you can help them to create a new identity. So they're, they're kind of the things that I have written down that our community and with social workers can help XJWs to recover quickly, more quickly than the decade it took me. And then the things that you said were gaps still is education, group work, and um, actually helping them to actively practice courage. So my question is, sorry, it's a long-winded question, what else do you think might help them um, get to recovery quicker or do you think that covers everything that can be done?
1: No, no, I I think that um, all of those things are so important and I remember when I first started to leave and I used to watch Louise and others and I felt like I was a kid in a lolly shop. You know, it was all so forbidden and, 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 and and you had lots and lots of them. (laughs) And then, and then you learn over time, you start to learn that, you know, um, who suits you and who doesn't. And, and just because people are ex Jehovah's Witnesses and they might have some sort of sight, some of them lead. you know, they, they do nothing for me. I think it's really important for people to to use what's good for them, um, and and also I think as you go along you get a bit more clever about it too because um, some some sites aren't as safe as others, and and I don't mean um, electronically, I mean emotionally. Um, there can be a little bit of bullying a little when they're not properly regulated, um, but I also think that you know it's social workers have to also um, realise that it can be really easy for an ex-Jehovah's Witness to just adopt even the social worker's belief system in in order to sort of circumvent the pain and grab onto something new. But, uh, you know, like a social worker has to encourage that internal locus of control while supporting the individual while they search for their new meaning and their authentic, non-cult self. And that's especially, like, for Born In members who've been socialized in that really self-contained world from from birth so i i think psychoeducation probably is the largest component in if you understand the cult dynamics i think through all those things that you spoke about when you understand things you can deal with them better and and come out a completely different person the non the non-cult person and like I, I wouldn't i would consider myself agnostic at best and yet some people decide to st- embrace another religion and that's okay too
2: i agree if you, you you work your way through all the different types of people that video, and you find the one that suits you. And that's why I love having a diversity of people online because there are things that I'd never do, or that I, or there are, um, yeah, sort of beliefs that I'd never endorse. But I would never tell that other person to not video that because I think we're, there needs to be something for everyone, and I think it should be a broad church, and I think you have to be discerning about. What works for you so that if you then become a Christian, you might find a Christian blogger that suits your belief set. And if you're a, a frothing atheist like me, you might find a frothing atheist blogger that suits you. And, yeah. And, and if you, if you don't like sweary comedy, please, please, please don't watch my videos. <laughs> <laughs> because they'll just really badly offend you and trigger you.
0: Yeah. I think, um, th- there's, There's me too, which is very – I'm very forward in being an activist and um, some people who are freshly coming out aren't ready for that. Um, For example, I really encourage people to submit complaints to the government and I want them to participate in governmental inquiries and I want them to attend the protest and I want them to prosecute. And, you know, some people aren't ready for that. Um, not persecute, prosecute. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that's part of your courage, isn't it, Lisa? Getting your courage back.
1: I think, I think it is really important to, um, support those, to support activists, um, because it, it's the activists who, who end up, you know, just, just wide handing away, wide-ending away, and they're the ones that, that end up bringing these organisations down. And they just need support, and we can do. We should do what we can. Yeah, I watched um, a
0: um, YouTube clip yesterday by um, by the name of Mark Fox, is his name, and he's got a channel called Witness No More. And I know he could certainly use some support this week, so that would be greatly appreciated if you watch Witness No More. Um, okay. But in terms of if I go back to just the social working and um, the future. If if those things are taken up, Lisa, where you get more time for the psychoeducation, for the group work and, you know, helping people, facilitating them to practice courage, was there anything else that you could think of, you know, something perhaps that needs lobbying or funding to help recovery, like an advertising program about the BITE
1: model or, you
0: know, is there something on your wish list? Uh,
1: probably I think that it would be really good um for social workers because they they do attend a lot of um professional development and 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 that is something that i that i might think about is that that sometimes just a just a talk at at a, at a professional development day about the specifics of cults because you know in, in Tasmania here not far from us there's actually an amish community complete with the little black carts and the girls in their dresses and the homeschooling. We've got – yeah, and they sell – the little girls sell, uh, make pies and they sell them on Fridays out at the front of the farm and, the, and they're com- in the complete garb and the horses and the carts and we've got a lot of um, quite – quite um, a lot of fundamentalist groups here. There are a lot – and I remember um, a, a one of the tutors at university telling me one of these women from one of these fundamentalist cults that they have them out in the bush and, and, and they, they're just, you know, completely isolated in community, um, she would have access to a phone once a week and once a week she would ring this counsellor just for this, just to talk to her when she just had the chance to talk.
2: Oh, my goodness. That's so hard. And people think, oh, aren't they quaint? Aren't they old-fashioned? Like, uh, they're really
0: sweet and it's so damaging. It is. It's no wonder you watch The handmaiden's Tale. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it would be evocative.
2: Lisa, I'm going to put you in touch after the podcast with my social worker friend Heather because she actually put together training for social workers in my area. I helped her a little bit, but actually she did the bulk of it in the end and she checked it out with Kathleen Halliser, who's a solicitor here who's very supportive of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. And she, she did exactly that and put together, um, a training package to train social workers in what to look out for when they're dealing with um jehovah's witness children so i'll put you in touch with heather after the podcast and maybe and i'm sure she'll share that with you it was a powerpoint we did
1: oh thank you very much yes and and there's a lot of um seven day adventists here too and and they are they are from they're they're from jehovah's witnesses aren't they they were they were the same the same cut from the same cloth and and they can be quite hardline too here. Mm. So, so it's not just Jehovah's Witness women. It, it, there's a lot of women who are suffering. There are a lot of women from all
2: sorts of coercive situations, and it's almost the same thing, isn't it? Domestic violence, abuse, control, prostitution, cult. It all conforms to that bite model. And um, God, God hates women, doesn't He, actually? <laughs> Really violently yeah. dislike. I sometimes wonder why he bothered inventing us, really, because given how much he severely dislikes our existence, and he he really doesn't like the fact that we have periods. He gets all arsey about us being unclean. I know that's the Old Testament, but we still get it thrown in his faces. And he's just what did he? He just wanted a womb, really, didn't he? What he should have done was invented men with wombs. I think that would have solved it and then he wouldn't have had to hate 50% of the population quite as badly as he does.
1: I remember when I was starting to leave, you know, and I and I was starting to talk to my dad who's, you know, anointed, which I see is actually, you know, a symptom of mental illness, but anyway, he, he claims to be anointed and he has since, you know, the 70s. He's a very old man now, and I remember starting to to talk to him about the two witness rule and and things and and he said to me, I knew you were going bad when you started to talk back to me. And I was in my 40s. <laughs> and actually, I just got to the point where I would scream at him. I just got to the point of being enraged. And I just would scream at him. So obviously, we don't speak now. Mm. I don't Sorry to hear it. that. It's conditional. It's conditional love. And conditional love, he even told me, you know, if you don't want to be a Christian woman, there's plenty of lovely Christian women in the congregation. So if that's if that's the rules, that's fine. You know what I mean? We don't need conditional love because that's not love at all. It's brutal,
2: that, isn't it? So it's basically saying if if you don't want to conform to every a stipulation that i decide for your life there's plenty of other random females that'll fit your place as a daughter figure
1: oh very much so christian ones nice christian ones it's just
0: non-stop guilt and it doesn't matter how old you are um, i'm pretty sure my mum still wouldn't allow me to drive her car i mean i'm just her little girl and you know not mature enough for simple things like that um <laughs> but um lisa if i if i've got one more question for you is that okay and then yes. I'd like to play a song that I think c- kind of encapsulates people who are recovering, um, which is that we're thinking about them. So my question to you is um, thinking about um, helping people to get to that end point a bit quicker. I mean, by an end point, I don't mean the end of their recovery. I just mean to a better place. There's eight things that I kind of summarised I thought would help define a person that's gotten, you know, near the end point of recovery. And they are, um, one, that they're a functioning member of society, two, that they're making their own considered decisions, three, that they have a great group of friends they choose to spend time with, four, that they're self-aware and they're calmly in control of their choices, five, they have the education that they want, that they always wanted, healthy and happy. Seven, yes. that they feel normal and they're wiser through the process. And eight, they're financially stable. So that's kind of the counterpoint. point, eight points to the ones that I thought sort of encapsulated them when they leave on day zero. Um, so my question to you is workers' services? Because you said before they have to be in crisis. But say they hear this and they think, oh, maybe I should contact a social worker. How does it
1: work from that perspective? Um, actually, um, where we live, there isn't a psychologist, and and I still need to um, see a, a social worker myself. I, I'm I'm still in recovery myself, and there's two very excellent social workers here in in my area. Um, one senior social worker who um, is used as a uh, a sounding board for the social workers who come from all over the place to see him here, and you just ring up and make an appointment. You know Australia is a, a good country. You know we we get through Medicare or um, the the community houses have social workers here who work for free. They just come in and volunteer. So there's plenty. Uh, and 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 also you, if if when you go in and you meet them, I've met two here who are excellent. Um, sometimes if you go in, I've met some. Uh, I had a terrible psychologist. Um, two. Ter- and I I went once and thought I'm never going back there. You know, you have to get a bit fussy and, uh, but it's, it's, it, but it is easy to just, just, you know, go there for the one hour or, or whatever you need. And, and, and if they're a good social worker, they'll, they'll help you to start or, or keep that ball rolling. So eventually, you know, that, that whole cult pseudo identity will just gradually just weaken as your ego strength and your awareness sort of grows. So, Mm. so, yeah, so I, I just, you know, you look
0: up, sorry, a social worker on the internet or you go to your uh, doctor or
1: how do you actually access a social worker? uh, How do you find them? uh, Yeah, on, well, through the community houses, Tasmania is full of community houses who have social workers through doctors, doctors, surgeries often have social workers, um, Anglicare, all those big, um, faith-based organizations are full of social workers there's there's plenty of ways to access them um through the internet as well you know through through all those yeah
0: cool i've never seen one i never knew how to get to one and what they did so i am um much wiser and educated thank you
1: but shop around because like anything there's there's good good practitioners and not so good ones. Lisa I thank you so much for being interviewed.
2: I had no idea that you'd gone through this process and watched the videos and then educated yourself and got a career. It's really nice to speak to you and to speak to someone um, so knowledgeable about about development out of a, a coercive situation I've really appreciated your input today. Thank you Thank you very much
0: for
1: having me. It's been so lovely.
0: <laughs> You're sweet. Um, and I've spoken to you a couple of times, Lisa, and I, like I said, I've, it's been six months or more that I've waited to have you on, so it's a pleasure to have you. Was there anything thank- else that you wanted to sum up with, Lisa, because I know that you had a couple of thoughts. Was there anything else you wanted to leave
1: us with? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm happy. It's been lovely. So, so just thank you again very much. Oh, Thank you. Um, Lara, you mentioned the song? Yes, um, and I didn't get
0: to hear the end of Christian and Katja's, um podcast. I got halfway through today. So I'm hoping you haven't used this song yet, but I thought it was pertinent to Lisa today because she's really caring. And as you can hear, the empathy is what people need and the thoughts. So my song is um, Pink, and she sings What About Us? And we want people to know we're thinking about them. (laughs) Thank you. That's great.
2: I just need to say something about Christian and Katya's song. I picked it and I don't know why. The song just really reminded me of them but it totally is not anything about them at all. It's about an American couple and it's quite a, it's quite a sad song. And it's got this <laughs> refrain in it about like life goes on long after the fun of it is over and I'm thinking that's completely opposite to Christian culture. I did feel a bit bad about it, but it's a cracking good song in my opinion. And I don't know why, but it just gave me a feel of them but the song the sentiment and the song is nothing like them at all so apologies uh, in retrospect for the song being totally inappropriate but quite nice but thank you for picking an appropriate song for Lisa today you see this is what happens Lara when you leave me to do things on my own it just all goes to cock I can't be left unsupervised I think is the moral of the story it's always nice to have a male co-host but don't, don't, I can't be left unsupervised. It just goes wrong quite quickly. <laughs> so we will play pink. And thank you, ladies, so much for another JW Community Podcast. And thank you to our three or four viewers for listening. That's great.
1: Uh, say goodbye, Laura. Goodbye, Louise. Bye, Lisa. Bye. Thank you.
0: Down the river too far
2: What about us? What about all the times you said you had the answers? What about us? What about all the broken, happy ever after?